the song says, Lord, that you and you alone are fit to take the universe's throne. And we're reminded how unfit we are as human beings. We are so thankful that you reign above all of our comings and goings and rumblings, everything that happens on the earth, Lord. You see the end from the beginning. You are sovereign. You are God. And I pray today, Lord, now as we open your word together, that you would powerfully come by your Holy Spirit and encourage our hearts for the journey this week that we will face. Father, many of us have joys to look forward this week. Some have challenges. But I pray, Lord, that you would remind us in a most powerful way that you are King of kings and sovereign over all. I pray this in Jesus' name and ask now for your help in Jesus' name. Probably most of us are familiar with the Big Dipper. Is that a, an assumption I can make? The Big Dipper, that set of seven stars shaped sort of like a ladle, visible on clear nights. From our perspective on the ground, it looks as though the Big Dipper is a two-dimensional pattern, stars laying flat in the sky. But here's the reality, friends. The reality is that there is a gap of 46 light years between the closest of those seven stars and the furthest. So the closest of the seven stars in the Big Dipper is just a mere 78 light years away from us. But the furthest of those seven stars is 124 light years away from us. So there's more to the Big Dipper than meets the eye from our perspective on the ground. Another thing that I find interesting about the Big Dipper is that two of its seven stars are moving downward and to the right. Now we don't see that with the naked eye, but the shape of the Big Dipper is actually changing every second. So there's a big difference. The point is there's a big difference between our perception of the Big Dipper as we stand on the earth and look at it with the unaided eye. There's a big difference between that and the reality of what's actually happening with those seven stars. This morning we begin a journey through the Old Testament book of Daniel. I'm excited about this. The opening verses of Daniel present us with a single event perceived from two very different perspectives. A single event perceived from two very different perspectives. There is the on-the-ground perspective of what's happening, which is a limited and incomplete perspective. And then there is the divine perspective, the full-orbed perspective, which gives us the actual, the actual reality of what is going on. I want you to think about your own life for a second. Take any event, doesn't matter what it is, any event in your life, any heartache in your life, any triumph, and understand that there is more than meets the eye 
in that event, heartache, or triumph. Your perspective and my perspective is limited, yes? Remember that. We don't have all the facts. God is always working things out that are quite beyond our comprehension. Yes? Now, as we approach the book of Daniel, I want to give you, you never know what you'll get on a Sunday morning, but I want to give you just a brief sketch of the history that surrounds the story. I think knowing a little bit about the historical context will help us understand what's going on in the book of Daniel. So buckle up for just a little bit of history here. So the nation of Assyria had been the superpower in the Middle East for about 150 years. Assyria had a reputation for brutal conquests. And during their moment in the sun, on the world stage, they had managed to invade and conquer several smaller nations in the region, including Israel. But about 600 years or so before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Assyria was waning. The empire was deteriorating. In fact, it was threatening to collapse altogether. Now, there were two other nations, Babylon and Egypt, who were both paying attention to this decline of Assyria. Babylon and Egypt were both waiting for their respective opportunities, whenever they came, to overthrow Assyria and then hopefully ascend to become the new superpower in the region. And it was during this time when Babylon and Egypt were sort of salivating at possibilities that the pharaoh of Egypt installed a puppet king on the throne of Judah. And that king's name was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim began to reign in Judah in the early 600s BC, and Jehoiakim was essentially a yes-man, a puppet for the pharaoh of Egypt who had installed him. But now what happened was that a major battle took place between Egypt and Babylon just four years after Jehoiakim is installed on the throne, and Babylon won. Babylon won in decisive fashion. So now there was a new boss in town, and his name was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Freshly in power, as kings do, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to try to assert his dominance in the entire region. So soon after he had defeated Egypt, he went over to Judah. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar decided to take a, a few hostages with him from Judah back to Babylon. Four of those hostages that Nebuchadnezzar took were Daniel and his three friends, who we're going to meet just a little bit later. But suffice it to say for now that Daniel and his three friends were some of the best and brightest of Judah's teenagers, and now they are taken away from their homeland in a flash to the foreign land of Babylon. 
Well, fast forward another eight years now to 597 BC, and Jehoiakim of Judah rebels, flagrantly he rebels against his Babylonian overlord. So now here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Once again, he's on the march to Jerusalem. But as it happened in that moment, Jehoiakim dropped dead. And so now his son, Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, (laughs) yeah, it's hard to keep track, right? Jehoiachin now found himself on the throne of Judah, and in 597, Nebuchadnezzar decided that he would take King Jehoiachin of Judah to Babylon, along with several other key leaders from Judah, including a name you might know, the prophet Ezekiel. So Jehoiachin is now over in Babylon, and as a replacement for Jehoiachin back in Judah now, Nebuchadnezzar installs this person named Zedekiah on the throne of Judah. And it only took 10 years for Zedekiah, foolishly, to rebel against Babylon. And this time, this time, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. In 587, his army breached the walls of Jerusalem. There was a great slaughter. And the Jerusalem temple was first looted, and then it was burned The Babylonians laid waste to the city of Jerusalem and they carried off droves of starved, traumatized people into exile. The people of Judah, think of it, let's try to put put ourselves in their shoes if we can. The people of Judah suddenly found themselves, very suddenly, utterly disoriented. No more land, promised to Abraham, no more Judean king in the line of David, and no more temple. Now their feet were standing on foreign soil. The morals were different in Babylon. The values were different. The food was different. The culture was different. The gods were different. What was going on here? Were they still in covenant with Yahweh? What about all those many promises that had come from God through Abraham and Moses? Was God still on the scene for them, or had he simply abandoned them altogether? And how is one supposed to live in a situation where everything has suddenly gone haywire. Well, friends, stay tuned, because the book of Daniel is going to help us. Let's go to the text of Daniel now with that brief historical sketch, hopefully fresh in our minds. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So this information in this part of the verse places us in 605 BC. Remember that Jehoiakim was the puppet king 
who had been put on the throne by Egypt, but now Egypt was off the scene because Babylon had defeated them so decisively. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and, what? Besieged it. Again, this is soon after Nebuchadnezzar's defeat of Egypt. He's flexing his muscles in the region. He comes to Jerusalem and he besieges it. Notice carefully that there are a couple of verbs here. A couple of action words that describe Nebuchadnezzar. He came to Jerusalem. Let's not skip over that too fast. He came to Jerusalem, first of all. That is, Nebuchadnezzar decided to go to Jerusalem, and he organized his military leaders, and those military leaders then organized the troops, and together they gathered enough helmets and swords and shields and slings and chariots, and they traveled. They traveled over land to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. And, second verb, he besieged Jerusalem. That is, Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, surrounded Jerusalem with an intimidating show of military force ready to do damage in Jerusalem. Now, let's try to get into Nebuchadnezzar's head in this moment just for a second. I think if we could get into Nebuchadnezzar's head in this moment, we might hear something, the thought process would be something like this. My gods and I laid waste to Egypt and the Egyptian army, and we can do it again here too in little Jerusalem. There's no one more powerful than me with my superior Babylonian gods. I am the new superpower in this region. Compared with me and my gods and the military technology that I have at my disposal, everyone else is weak. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, friends, remember our earthly perspective on the Big Dipper. As we stand out in the countryside on a clear night, it looks like a stationary ladle that is lying flat in the sky, but we know the reality is very, very different. Nebuchadnezzar was looking at the Big Dipper from the ground, so to speak. The reality for Nebuchadnezzar was far different than he perceived with his limited, very incomplete, earthly perspective. And let's go now to verse 2 to see this. Let's read it carefully. Enter God. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
enter God into the story of Daniel for the first time. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But, but wasn't it the new chariot technology and the innovative cutting-edge swords, pardon the pun, wasn't it the supersonic missiles, the stealth bombers, the superior military strategy, the weakness of the opponent? Wasn't it those things that gave King Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? No. That would be the two-dimensional earthly perspective talking. Verse 2 gives us, friends, the full-orbed reality of what was really going on. It turns out that the outcome of Nebuchadnezzar's siege was in God's sovereign control. Yes? In God's sovereign control. The Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, let, now pause on this with me here for a moment. Let's, let's think through this. Are we reading this right? What this verse is telling us is that the plan, the plan in this situation, the plan of both Nebuchadnezzar and the Lord God was that Jehoiakim king of Judah would fall into Babylonian hands. We know that Nebuchadnezzar wanted Jehoiakim, of course, to fall into his hands, but according to this verse, God wanted the same thing. So in a way that might make us a little uncomfortable here, God, listen, God and Nebuchadnezzar are working here as allies. The Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's but notice, and this is crucially important, notice, notice carefully, there's absolutely nothing said here in the text about Nebuchadnezzar being conscious of God's operations. For all Nebuchadnezzar knows, it was his own military might and the weakness of Judah that had brought all of this about. But you and I now know better because we've been told Nebuchadnezzar would not have Jehoiakim in his hands unless God said so. God is in control, friends. Do you know that? God is in control. We look at what appears to be a two-dimensional set of stars. But the reality is very different because we don't have all the facts above our chaos, above our despair, above the fragmentation that we can often feel in this life, there is a good God who is working out wisdom in all of it that we may know nothing about. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's a powerful king here. <laughs> he thinks he knows why all these fortuitous circumstances have worked out for him, but he doesn't have all the facts. There is a higher king, yes, above Nebuchadnezzar, a king who is using little Nebuchadnezzar in the working out of 
God's higher divine purposes. But a question that, we, that might be ringing in our minds right now is, why, why does God give up his king in Jerusalem to this upstart Babylonian king? Why does God do this? Well, to understand why, we have to read our Bible. Earlier in the sermon, we talked about that series of three trips that Nebuchadnezzar and his army made to Jerusalem, culminating in the final one, 587 BC, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple and performed a mass extraction of people out of Judah to Babylon. Well, several hundred years prior to that exile, God had promised through the pen of Moses that such an exile was a sure thing. It was a sure thing if the people of God violated the covenant and if the people of God disobeyed the commands that he had laid out. God had warned, way back in Leviticus 26, 33, if you refuse to listen, Israel, if you break my commands, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. That sure sounds like the Babylonian exile, doesn't it? And again, in Deuteronomy 28, verse, verse 49 and 50, God warned Israel, if you disobey my commands, I will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. And verse 52, they shall what? Way back in the Torah. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls, Jerusalem, in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. So that when we read in Daniel 1 verses 1 and 2 with its talk here of Nebuchadnezzar besieging Jerusalem, getting his hands on, on Judah's king, these are actually descriptions, friends. They're descriptions of God faithfully keeping his promises. Yes? It's a soundtrack. God faithfully keeping his promises. He had promised that this exile would happen. Way back in the Torah, he had promised this. Should his people rebel and disobey and refuse to listen to his commands. And it's very interesting for us to note that Daniel himself understood all of this very well. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, Daniel is praying, and he says to the Lord, listen to what he says, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And what happened? The curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses in those passages we just read 
the servant of God, have been what? Poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words. He's been faithful to his promises, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. The exile to Babylon, the besieging of Jerusalem, the taking of the king, the looting of the temple, and the burning of the temple, this whole series of events that Chris Wright has rightly called the most traumatic event in the whole Old Testament history, all of this can be understood as God being faithful friends in carrying out what he'd warned about hundreds of years prior through the pen of Moses. Well, verse 2 then goes on to tell us, listen to this, that God's instrument, Nebuchadnezzar, God's instrument, Nebuchadnezzar, also got his hands on some of the vessels of the house of God, and Nebuchadnezzar brought those holy temple vessels along with the captured king Jehoiakim, we, we learn in Chronicles that Jehoiakim was brought too, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar brings Jehoiakim and all this looted furniture from the Jerusalem temple, and he presents it all to his Babylonian god Marduk, in Marduk's house, in Marduk's temple. This is what you did in the ancient Near East when you won a victory over another nation, because the belief was, if you won the victory, that your god had won over their god. Your god was better than their god. Your god had shown himself superior to their God. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, now in Marduk's temple, he's thanking Marduk for this victory over Yahweh of Israel and showing Marduk the spoils. Here are the spoils, Marduk, from the Jerusalem temple. Isn't this great? Again, friends, this shows how unaware <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is. He's completely out to lunch. He's looking at the Big Dipper as a two-dimensional, flat star pattern. He has no idea of the reality that is afoot here. And what's the reality? The reality is that Yahweh, God of Israel, is in total control of everything, including supposed Marduk. The reality is that Yahweh has orchestrated this entire historical happening, as Yahweh does, from top to bottom, but Nebuchadnezzar is blind to it. And don't miss here in verse 2 that little mention, this is very interesting, of Shinar. Nebuchadnezzar brought, captured Jehoiakim along with the temple loot, to the land of Shinar. Why didn't the writer of Daniel just simply say that Nebuchadnezzar came to Babylon? Why this alternate name for Babylon, Shinar? 
Well, he's saying something to us with this use of Shinar <laughs> instead of Babylon. This place called Shinar is only mentioned eight times in the entire Old Testament, and fully half of those eight mentions are in the book of Genesis. Now, friends, I think if we were to pick a Bible passage that best described human pride and arrogance, self-importance, that passage might be Genesis 11. Genesis 11 describes the building of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a shining example of human pride, opposition to, to, to God. And what was the geographical setting for the Tower of Babel? It was the land of Shinar, according to Genesis 11, verse 2. So this place, we need to notice, this place called Shinar is associated, very early on in the Bible, it's associated with human pride and human arrogance. And now here in Daniel 1-2, Nebuchadnezzar is bringing his hostage, he's bringing his loot from God's house in Jerusalem to Shinar to show it all off to his pretend God. And by associating the name Nebuchadnezzar with Shinar, our narrator is suggesting quite clearly to us that there is some pride already at work in Nebuchadnezzar, some opposition to God. Stay tuned. Well, this morning we've journeyed through only the first two verses of Daniel. And there is, I think you would agree, a suddenness or an abruptness about the verbs in these verses that describe Nebuchadnezzar's actions. Nebuchadnezzar came, besieged, brought loot to Shinar. There was a suddenness about all this. And for the people of Judah, this suddenness would have been very traumatizing. Their lives were interrupted. Their routine was upended. Life changed in an instant. Their king had been taken away. What was going on here? Where was God? Had he lost control? Was God asleep when Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged them? Now, some of you sitting here today might be in a place of disorientation. You're reeling because something has happened that you did not see coming. You, you might be wondering where God is, or if God even cares. Well, friend, I want to remind you that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In a situation of chaos, where you look around and you assume that the Big Dipper is two-dimensional, so to speak, the reality is very different. God is in full control. Amen? Sovereignly and calmly, always calmly, because nothing surprises Him, sovereignly and calmly in the midst of our confusion, God is working out His wise and perfect plan. He always is. 
He's at work in your chaos. He's at work in your disorientation. So trust Him. Depend on Him. Lean on Him. Listen to Him. Cling to His almighty hand. Ian Duguid, I think, puts this very well when he says this. The reality is, the reality is that our every experience in this world, from the apparently coincidental at one end of the spectrum to the determined acts of wicked men and women on the other, lies under the control of our sovereign God. Isn't that good news? The sparrow does not fall to the ground without his permission. Matthew 10, 29, which demonstrates that even the most trivial of events are within his view. Let's finish this morning by looking at the cross of Jesus from our position on the ground. What do we see? Well, in our limited perspective, if we were there that day, what do we see? We see Roman soldiers, we see Roman officials, Jewish authorities conspiring together in wicked and evil fashion. They conspire to bring Jesus of Nazareth to Golgotha, there to fasten nails through his wrists and his feet and execute him. He's caused so much trouble for the status quo elites. He must be dispatched now, executed. And so government mixed with religion sees to it that Jesus is crucified. There he is hanging on the cross. But you see, friends, that's only the two-dimensional view. We get the full-orbed view, the three-dimensional reality of what was going on at the cross in Acts chapter 4. The apostles Peter and John are in Jerusalem in Acts 4. They've just been released from an an interrogation, and they gather with some friends, and they pray. And listen to the truth that they pray in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. They pray, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And now here comes the 3D reality in verse 28. They say, Herod and Pontius Pilate, all those people were conspiring against Jesus to do, listen, whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. See, friends, nothing happened to our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross that fell outside of God's sovereign hand and plan. Herod and Pilate, they may have thought they were in full control of the crucifixion, but they weren't. God was. Jesus was. Didn't Jesus say before he ever went to the cross that he was the one who laid down his life 
so that he might take it up again, John 10, 17. He said in the very next verse, listen, no, this is before the cross, no one takes it, takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. My friends, at the cross, God was in full control from top to bottom. On the ground, it appeared that the wicked conspirators had won, but the reality was that they had lost. Satan had lost in decisive fashion because through the dark shades of the cross, through the dark shades of the cross, God was doing what? He was blossoming a redemptive flower that changed the world. Forgiveness of sins is found in the cross. Reconciliation between God and his sinful people is found in the cross. You can be forgiven of your sins today by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God was in full control there on the hill called Calvary. And so you must believe, my friend, you must believe this week that God is in full control of your situation. Whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is, believe that and believe that he is good and that his wisdom, I don't know how many times this has borne itself out in my life, when the lights go on for dull Brent and I figure out, okay, Lord, your wisdom is actually far superseding my own. His wisdom far supersedes ours. So walk by faith and not by sight, clinging to God and trusting in Him. As He beckons us in Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then the promise, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have given us your word so that in any life situation, we can see the forest and not get hung up in individual trees. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your wisdom in your word, that you show us, Lord, over and over and over again in the stories of Scripture that you indeed are sovereign, that you are good, that everything in history is moving toward your prescribed goal. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone here today that they would trust you in their situation and that they would glorify you and worshipfully cling to you, Lord. I pray in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your help. Amen.